Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Sam. How are things? Hey, Laurie. I am, I'm okay, thank you. Although, you know, I am sad like a lot of the rest of the literary world because we have lost some royalty. Yeah, we're not talking about Queen Elizabeth here. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we have lost uh, Javier Marias, who is a wonderful writer and will be rightly remembered for his incredible work. But also a lesser known fact about him was that, uh, tell me if I'm getting this right, he was the ruler of the island of Redonda. Yes, there is a little speck of stone, I guess, out there. I'm not going to say or pretend to know where this little dot of stone is that uh, is an uninhabited island that has been passed down through literary generations. And Javier Amareas was, I believe I'm correct in saying, the the last or the latest ruler of the kingdom of Redonda. I'm not quite sure what literary giant will inherit the title to the throne. I will just say, before we start talking about Javier Marais's, uh just remarkable body of work, that we will be having a writer named Michael Hingston on the show later this fall. And he's written a really intriguing book. I'm really excited to read it called Try Not to Be Strange, The Curious History of the Kingdom of Redonda. So after we uh, talk to Michael, I'm sure we're going to know all about Redonda, including my inability to tell you where it is locationally <laughs> on the map. But yeah, let's talk about Javier Moraes a little bit. Just a remarkable writer. He died just short of his 71st birthday on September 11th. He wrote 14 novels, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I haven't read them all. One, that they are many, and they're they're thick and they're juicy, and you want to savor and spend your time with them. But his last novel, Thomas Nevinson, hasn't been translated yet into English. It was released in Spain in March 2021. But I'm sure that Margaret Jewel Costa, who's done such an excellent job of translating nearly all of Javier Moraes' novels, will do an excellent job with that as well. But Moraes was someone that really meant a lot to me as a reader. And I think that some of it has to do with the way that he explored loyalty and relationships and kind of complex issue of secrets and whether you know, we kind of say sunshine is the best disinfectant, but Moraes kind of looked at this issue about whether or not it's always 100% best to reveal mysteries and secrets and things about your past and even your present that might be there, but might be better left kept in the dark, so to speak. A lot of his books revolved around British intelligence agents and their kind of complex relationships with the people that they loved, the people that they felt bound to by the past and by duty. 
And he was just a really, I think, keen observer of human nature. We talked, Sam, at quite some length about the first volume of his trilogy, which most people consider the pinnacle of his novelistic writing career, Your Face Tomorrow, Fever and Spear, in episode 23 of the podcast. And I really enjoyed talking with you about that. Yeah, me too. And that was my first introduction to him, really. I hadn't read one of his books before. And as you'll you'll hear from that podcast, I was you know, really impressed, occasionally bemused and confused, but in in the best possible way, because uh, as you were saying, he, he kind of leaves things unsaid, uncovered. He leaves you with mysteries and leaves you wondering and, and wanting more, even though the books are so thick and so rich and so, so full of things, as you, as you said. Yeah. So I was just, just starting to get to know him, I guess. But as you say, the good news is, uh, although he's gone too early, he has got this tremendous legacy. Yeah. One of his novels, A Heart So White, won the Dublin Literary Award in 1997. Just one of the many awards that he's won. And he was, I think, in the past 10 years at least, always on the shortlist of people that were thought to be serious contenders for the Nobel Prize in Literature. And it wasn't only the issues and the the subject matter of his novels that was so extraordinary to me, but it's it was kind of the way that he that he wrote about the interiority of his characters. And if you wouldn't mind, Sam, I just wanted to kind of read some things that I wrote about his writing back in 2017. And this was when I was on the jury for the Best Translated Book Award. And this is something that I was writing about his novel, Thus Bad Begins. But I think that you could really say this about his writing in all of his novels. I wrote, his prose digs deeper than his character's impressions. He goes inside them, inside their minds, as thoughts are formed and reformed by experience and emotion. It's writing that is nuanced and introspective yet somehow retains an ample lightness and natural feeling so that it never risks collapsing under its own weight. His sentences demand to be read, reread, and savored. And to me, that's the real beauty of his writing. Not everyone can write those big, chewy sentences. And we've we've recently remarked when we had uh, Gwendolyn Riley on the show that sometimes just those really brisk and and pithy sentences are like just stab you in the heart. And Moraes had a quite different style than I think Gwendolyn Riley does. But, you know, both are kind of masters of the style that they own. And I really feel like no one, no one quite did it the way Javier Moraes did. No, great. Well, Sam, thank you for taking some time to, uh, to honor this writer with me on today's podcast. And, and he will be sincerely missed, but the best tribute we can do is just keep reading him. Yes, yes, we can. And we will. All right, Sam. Thanks so much. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, Laurie. Hello, Across the Pond listeners. We're really, really honored today to have with us writer Demisty Bellinger, whose novel, New to Liberty, is one of the Republic of Consciousness Prize submissions 
As you know, if you listen to us, we've been featuring these submissions periodically, and we will continue to do so over the next few months. So we're really happy and honored to have Demisty with us today. Hi, Demisty. Hello. Good morning. So why don't we start talking about New to Liberty? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about where the novel takes place and how you chose this title and location and some of the characters. Sure. So the novel takes place in Kansas, in rural Kansas, um, in two areas that are near each other, Liberty and Kismet. And um, it takes place, the time period that it takes place are, is three different time periods. It follows three different women. The first one we meet is Cicely, and her time period is 1966. She's in a May-December relationship. She's the younger person. And um, she's originally from Tennessee, and she's traveling across country with her boyfriend, who is from the Liberty area in Kansas. She realizes, well, let's go on to the next character. The next story is um, Nella's story, or next part is Nella's part. And she her story takes place in the 1940s. She's in a biracial relationship. She is African-American. She's new to the area. She comes from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and she meets a young man who is white, and they fall in love, and they have a young relationship. And the final story takes place in the same rural area, and the character there is Greta, and Greta is a queer woman. She's she's a lesbian, and her story takes place during the Dust Bowl, so that's the 1930s. And in the United States, around the time of the Great Depression, her family has been in that area since homesteading began in the United States. And the story follows each of their their stories are similar in that each of them realizes their own autonomy. They realize their own freedoms in their own ways. I don't think that their stories end with this novel, but they're able to move on from the different issues that they face within their stories. The stories are interconnected. They're not short stories. It is a novel. There is an overarching theme of um, finding oneself and realizing one's own self, defining one's own self. Um, The title, New to Liberty, I think is a beautiful title. It's a- um, Agree. (laughs) Is not one I came up with. So the very original title for the book was Jackrabbits. And there's a story behind the Jackrabbits, which kind of was the genesis for me writing the book when I was doing research during grad school. Um, I learned about the Jackrabbit Roundup during the Dust Bowl because Jackrabbits were kind of like locusts. They came and they ate everything. It was hundreds of thousands of Jackrabbits. And that that idea that 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 general like problem of something that I always consider as cute <laughs> being a menace um, and people getting together to kill these rabbits began this book and I just thought the word jackrabbit is it's one of those words that kind of sounds funny so I I first not funny as and haha but you know it's just jackrabbit so. <laughs> So that was my original title. I am not great coming up with titles. 
And working with my agent on the book, we changed the title a few times. Before we sent it to Unnamed, we landed on Kansas Quiet. And I sent it to Olivia, well, my agent sent it to Olivia Smith. And when I spoke with her first about the book, she said that she did not like the title, which is understandable. She read the book again and she gave me a few ideas. And um, one of the, it was in dialogue or narration, one of the characters says, I was still new to Liberty. And she pulled out new to Liberty. And I thought, wow, that kind of really speaks to what is going on in the novel for all of these women. And I, I just thought it was a beautiful title and um, really astute of her to to pull that out. So I knew I was working with someone brilliant <laughs> after that. I was just like, okay, yeah. So um, I, I do like the title. I think it works on a lot of levels. So is Olivia Smith the, the editor of the book? Yes. Yes, she is. Um, she is one of the founders of Unnamed. But she has since moved on to Simon & Schuster. Oh, okay. Um, Just recently. But one of the things I have to say about Olivia is that since she's moved on, she has not stopped being a champion for this book. She keeps in touch. She still reshares promotions for the book. She is um, a a great person in many ways. And, And the press in general, Unnamed, is just a wonderful press. Just a joy to work with. Great. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> hey, so d- talking about the the jackrabbits and how that you know you you kind of saying it's funny, but also in within the book, it's very not funny because what happens no. to them is is so brutal and um, traumatic. Definitely traumatic for the rabbits, but you know also for everyone involved in these these mass cullings and killings. And I wanted to ask about the fact that there's a lot of trauma in this novel, both intimately physical and psychological, but it seemed to me like it was part of a broader historical picture as well. So I wondered if you could tell us a a bit about, hmm, what am I wanting to know? You know, what that, what the significance of that trauma and and why you had to write about it, I guess. I wish I had a, a straight answer of why I had to write about it. Well, the Jackrabbits were the genesis of the of the book, and my my initial question coming into it at first, I wrote a very short short story just about Sicily and Ezekiel, her boyfriend, and um, the question, you know, the the premise of that was after doing some research, I was working on my dissertation and my comprehensive exams, and I was working on working class fiction. And I read a lot of working class fiction, which, of course, in America, a lot of it is set during during the Dust Bowl or during the Great Depression. And some of the supplementary reading for that, I read a few books that mentioned, well, one book that mentioned the jackrabbit roundups, where they used to round up rabbits and club them to death. I guess in some places they would shoot them. And I watched some documentaries on that. It was just so gruesome. So my question was, okay, a person who has lived through this, what do they, what are they when they grow up? How do they grow up? How do they come out of this? Having lived through the experience of the Dust Bowl, of extreme hunger, and of um, killing to survive. And my parents are antique dealers, and they're also 
I know this, this kind of seems like, what is she talking about? Where's the connection here? But they also work, they have a business cleaning up after hoarders for the state of Wisconsin and um, the city of Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And some of the people are still alive. Some people have moved on. But one of the things I learned very early on as a kid is that um, people who live during a Dust Bowl will often hoard food, canned food, and um, also things like clothes. It's really difficult for them to throw anything away because they live through that want. And And I understood it very early on. I think I have the same problem in some ways, <laughs> not to the extent that someone caused the city on me. <laughs> so just thinking of what what does that do to a person to live through those horrors? So that that only speaks to three of the characters in the entire novel, really. What for the other traumatic experiences that I write about? I don't know where they came from. I wish I did. I wish I could speak to that. But there is instances of violence against women in the book, a couple of cases. And I didn't, because of the time period, I didn't necessarily want to resolve those incidents because it felt more realistic for not to be resolved, Mm. if that makes sense, without spoiling the book, as they say. So how do you move on if justice is not served? How do you how do you go on from that? And that's that's a, another thing I wanted to look at in that book. How do we survive those things if if there is never any atonement for it? I think that it's interesting to look at two of the principal characters in the book in terms of this question that you ask that you know you're involved with bludgeoning jackrabbits over the head with with bats and sticks until they they're dead which is just one of the horrors of the dust bowl right but then years later what are you what 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 kind of person are you are are you and how have you come out of it and two examples of that i guess that seem to me at least on opposite opposite ends of the spectrum would be your character lucky who is a young man who was crippled actually by getting hit inadvertently by a club during one of these jackrabbit roundups and also then had a case of polio which just seems so totally cruel on top of it but he's a he's a crippled man but he lives in a very i would say kind of hopeful world. He's got a hopeful perspective on things. And then the other character that looms really largely over the whole story is Margaret Svoboda. And we see her first in 1966 in the opening story in the novel. And she's one rough character. She's not a very nice lady. (laughs) But then it's so wonderful and eye-opening to see how you depict her in 1933 during the Dust Bowl. And she's a mother, but she's also, you know, the lover in this lesbian relationship and very gentle and kind. So do you want to talk a little bit about why those two characters maybe come out so differently? Um. I think with Lucky, I, I've always seen him as like this intelligent boy 
um, when he was young, he was very curious and intelligent and just loved life and people. She sounds so corny and it doesn't, I don't, I hope it doesn't come off cross that way in the novel, but I just, he seems like the kind of person you would want to be around. Also reasonable and funny. So I, I love him as a character. And I, I think the big difference and, and, you know, the parts that aren't seen, the parts that are underneath the surface, I think, is Lucky was young during the Dust Bowl. So he was a kid and kind of brought up into it. Whereas Margaret had um, lived prior to that when the Great Plains were the land of plenty, milk and honey and everything, and experiencing loss. Um, so the idea is that she had this lovely farm, this lovely life, and then Dust Bowl comes and takes a lot of that away from her. In the interim, she falls in love with Greta and during the worst of of um, of times, really in her life, lots of lost um, in many ways. But I think it's, she just becomes or seemingly becomes a bitter old woman because everything that she has promised is taken away from her. So the things that she's hoped for is are gone. And I think, I don't want to say bitter old woman and that she is hateful or spiteful or anything like that. I think she just becomes ultra-realistic, like uber-realistic about life and um, very cynical. But, you know, we never, I shouldn't say we never, I never write about particular people. But there's something in her that is like in my great aunts where they the way that she hugs, like, this is a duty, you must hug your family. I stole that from the way my great aunts acted. <laughs> you know, they were old farm women from Tennessee, but, um, or they were, they, they've since passed on. But also, I lived for a while in the Great Plains, working on my district, or my, my PhD. And a lot of the older farm women, white farm women I met, you know, a lot of them are in Margaret's character, just like these strong, um, very serious women, practical, and look at life a different way than than those of us who had more hope in our lives. And also very um, kind, like surprisingly kind in ways that you don't expect. So she seems kind of honorary <laughs> in the first section. But I, I do, like, I like all of these characters, of course. I wrote them, I created them. But um, I, I do like her. I think she's interesting. And, and she has decided, you know, although she's not one of the main characters in the book, she has decided to also found her freedom mm. of how to live her life and her, to define herself. Yeah. One of, one of the things I really like about the book is there are these characters primarily women i guess who are you know in bad hard circumstances they have to get through but they do have this sense of defiance is that the right word that they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna do it anyway and you know they're gonna make something out of what they have and what they can get from it and maybe how they can move on from it and uh there's a a scene I really like where Sicily in the, in the first first of the three parts is kind of looking at herself in the mirror, 
with this yeah. kind of defiance. And she says, America is full of darkness. Anyone can make what they want of that. And I'm, I'm wondering, what does she make of that? Hmm. <laughs> I want to have a better answer. <laughs> can I tell, what is you, before I answer, can I tell you um, how, when I first wrote the, the first draft of this book, I was still in grad school. And I won a place when Nebraska still had the summer's writing conference and won a place in the master class. And um, the person who was running it, Emily Danforth, the um, student who was running it under Timothy Shafford, the writer and professor, she's like, Demisty, you got a spot. I need your book. And um, I think she was like the next week. I had 60 pages written, maybe, maybe 50 pages. Whoa. So... I didn't sleep for a while and wrote a book. So <laughs> sometimes when I hear things from, I was like, oh yeah, I wrote that. Cause I forgot it. And um, I worked with the writer, Maude Casey during that, that writer's camp or conference. And she was talking to me about the part where, when they found their mother during a dust bowl, I'm not going to give that away too much. And I was like, wow, that sounds really neat. And she's like, you don't remember writing this, do you? And I said, no, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. But what does she make of it? Like, the world is full of darkness. I think that she is trying to find her light in it. And and she thought that she can find it in the relationship that she was in. And then she starts questioning that. I think at that point. Right. In in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what she's like. You can make of it what you want. And she starts to decide to take control of herself. Yeah. To depend more on herself. Yeah. And maybe, I guess, I kind of sprung that on you now, I realize. But maybe she, <laughs> maybe she doesn't quite know, but she knows there's something. It's, al- it's almost more the emotional impact of saying yeah. that and kind of raising the fist. That is, and I think that's what struck me as a reader. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it is it it's really interesting I think the way that you've constructed the book and the way that each section takes place in a different decade but each section is narrated by one of these young women they're you know around 19 years of age all of them but they're 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 searching they're searching for their identity and and who they are and who they want to be and I think that I think that the way that you you write that in terms of their where their lives are going and how they're kind of at a at a crucial turning point maybe is really nice. One question I had was did you think a lot about how to organize the book in terms of the three parts and the decision to take the book in reverse chronological order? Yes. Yes, I did. It it went through a lot of iterations. At first, I had the stories intertwined, so we'll jump back and forth between characters and time periods. Then I also changed points of, of view, and I, you've talked to lots of writers before. I'm pretty sure you heard people say, it changed the whole book from first person to third person. And I did that, and <laughs> I didn't like it, so I went back to first. I don't know what... Like I had a year or two away from it. And when I came back to it and I read through it, I thought, what if I just separate them out into three different books so we won't jump around? And I I, I felt that it felt more authentic 
And I have to tell you, there is a section that where Cicely originally goes to California and we are with her for a long time and it's about a hundred or 200 pages. And my, my agent's like, this seems too clean. It seems like it's too much of a clean ending. And I fought against her like, no, I want to keep that. And when I separated those three out, I thought my agent's completely correct. That ending is just, for Sicily, it just doesn't work. I think in the sections of threes, I felt like I can see each story clearly or clearer. And um, the ending, the very ending of the book, I felt in this this version, it was a better commentary on the entire piece than what I had before. If that makes sense. I also had a frame before that just where the three women met up at the end and Boy, that was corny. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're left wondering about a lot of things, which yeah. is it's quite satisfying, I think. Thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you want to, can you tell us a little bit about the research that you did for the book? One of, yeah. one of the things that really struck me, of course, there's all kinds of detail about the Dust Bowl and, you know, how people lived and died through it. One of the, the, most, I think, enlightening details for me was, again, one of my favorite characters, Lucky, and how you describe the way that he has to maneuver physically around the world mm-hmm. in, you know, the 1940s in a very rural area that doesn't have a lot of blacktop, and he's in right. a wheelchair, and I'm sure it's not the the slick electronic versions that no. we see people using today. So did you study that or did you like check out one of these old wheelchairs? Oh, well, I, as I said before, my parents are antique dealers in it a, a few times. They had Victorian wheelchairs and I have three sisters and we used to, we we're all big girls. Like we're strong because <laughs> we all had to carry furniture as, <laughs> as kids uh-huh. and stuff. but they did have um, these Victorian wheelchairs before and we'll get in them and, scoot around and they're not easy. They're not easy to move around in. You know, immobility doesn't happen only in like you said, blacktop. There are areas where it's difficult to get around, especially during time periods like the forties or prior to that, when you're living in the country, you still have to get around. And he could have had a newer wheelchair, but for some reason I, I decided to give him probably because I had experience with the old Victorian ones with the um cane backs and stuff. <laughs> Also, just being with friends who are disabled and in and, and that way, like being in a wheelchair, trying to draw from that, those experiences. For instance, of two friends of mine who are, are painters, they, we, they took me to a museum or a couple of museums when I was in L.A. a couple of years ago. And while there, I realized that museums are built for the scene. They're built for people who stand at least what five five or five four. They're built for people who can walk around. And the artwork was you know, sometimes I have problems. I'm only five two seeing artwork. Can you imagine being in a wheelchair trying to see up or walking with people with a wheelchair talking to them? It's a different sensation because when we're talking and walking with people who can walk 
we're looking pretty much at their face. Most of us are, as I said, I'm five two. So usually I'm looking up, <laughs> but if you're walking with someone in a chair, you're looking down and it's, it's a different sensation too of walking with that person because of the movement that you don't even think about if you are ambulatory. I should have had a third cup of coffee before coming on. <laughs> one of the one of the really cool details again in the book and about Lucky is, of course, he's in this interracial relationship with Nella, and the subterfuge they use to go to the movie theater together <laughs> to buy her a nursing uniform so she can she can pose as his nurse so that they can spend time together in public. What was the inspiration for that? I don't think there was one. I think I was just thinking through it, like how would they actually go on a date? How would they actually be together besides just in his garage? He owns an auto garage. So how do you date someone that you're not supposed to be dating? So I I didn't really think about it. And I thought, well, it's kind of convenient for them that he is disabled and she can act as a nurse. (laughs) So I, I thought that was kind of cute to do that. Well, I read it and thought, like, this is the first time I've ever read about this happening, but I bet it happened. Um, it it you know? must have, right? Yes. I am not that smart, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it, it has happened. You know, since I, I I would think time immemorial people have been dating people they should not have been, right? This is why we have Romeo and Juliet and... Mm-hmm. I think people find ways. Love finds ways, right? Right, right. Hey, I wanted to ask. Going back to the the research, and mm-hmm. I know I know your book set in rural Canvas and not Oklahoma, like the Grapes of Wrath, or at least that's where the Grapes of right. Wrath starts. And of course, in the Grapes of Wrath, they set off and they leave the Dust Bowl. Right. And one of the, the big things about that book is you're left wondering what happened to the, the people who are left behind who decide to stay. Mm-hmm. And you've kind of answered that question in this book. Yes. Were yes. you conscious um, of that? Yeah, I, I was. And Grace of Wrath is one of my favorite books. I can't imagine teaching it now because it, I think it moves too slow for today's audiences, for today's students. Um, although I want to, it's a beautiful book. Mm. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I thought when reading that book, what about the people who cannot leave for whatever reason or who did, who did not want to leave? It's always the question in hindsight, um, whenever something horrible happens, like, why didn't you just leave? And and I, I wonder, forgive me for getting a little political, I wonder that now in America, would our kids ask us 10 or 20 years from now, why didn't you just leave? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> sometimes when things get kind of, you know, and a lot of the reasons that we don't just leave is because this is our these are the homes that we built, this is the life that we built, and we don't want to leave, or you just you don't have the money to leave or you don't have the means to leave. Of course, a lot of the people were forced to leave because they were their banks made due on those those mortgages, much like the great Re- recession in America in two thousand and eight. People were forced out of their homes, mm. but um if you are able to stay. Would you stay or would you would you leave? So one of the fun things I did in the book, at least I thought it was fun, and, and again, this is building off of my, my childhood, is and I made a lot of phone calls to parents and other people 
for research on that is having Greta and Lucky go and junk in houses <laughs> that were abandoned and finding food or clothes and just playing around in other people's houses who left as because when you did leave during the Dust Bowl, as Steinbeck showed us, you left a lot behind. You couldn't carry it all with you. Another thing that I think I kind of looked to Steinbeck for, the ending of his book was so messed up, but <laughs> hopeful. Mm. It was, you know, he he left you with some kind of hope. Mm. The, the grapes of wrath are still growing, but there's hope. <laughs> and I, I wanted to end this book on a hopeful note. And I hope I did that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Demisi, you're also a poet. And so do you want to talk about how your writing life works in terms of poetry and prose and which, which you style you feel more comfortable in? I don't think I feel any more comfortable in any one style. Um, Sometimes I start off things as a poem and I think this will work better as a story and go back and forth. I I really love writing or thinking about history. I like doing the research. I like going to the stacks or watching. I'm addicted to documentaries. So I watch a lot of documentaries or um, talking to people who I'm very lucky that I'm at a university. So I know historians so I can harass them, but just reading and, and doing that kind of work. So for instance, my my first full-length poetry book has a lot of neo-slavery poems in it. And some of those started off as stories, and I thought this will work better as a poem. Sometimes people request work. Usually when they request work, they request essays, which I'm, I don't think I'm, those are really hard to write for me. But sometimes people request a, a poem or short story. I like to think that all of my writing, well, we all have a style in our writing. And what I'm interested in oftentimes is imagery and sound or rhythm. And I started thinking about sound a little bit differently lately because I started thinking more and more about abilities. I I deal with rhythm a lot. I I play music. I love music. I'm not a good musician, but I, I do I do practice music. I'm in a my community orchestra. But I started thinking about, I'm thinking a lot more about disabilities. And if I have a student who is deaf or hard of hearing, how important to them is sound or the way the words work together? Are rhythms used differently for those writers or readers? And I know of a couple of deaf writers who are just, their work is beautiful. The same with imagery in terms of visual. If you think about readers or writers who are blind or hard of seeing, how do you how do you appeal to those readers? But still, that doesn't mean that I'm going to leave it alone completely. I'm not going to stop worrying about rhythm or how things sound. I often read my work aloud before I send it to anyone or before even I share it with my husband, who is my first reader all the time, um, just to hear how it sounds and if it works. Did I answer your question? You did. Okay. You did in, in a really, in a really beautiful way, actually. <laughs> because I think, I think that we oftentimes think of 
poetry as very as very rhythmic, but I think mm-hmm. that prose and your prose is that way too. And and mm-hmm. a lot you. of times prose is and and also thinking about the other senses that are that are activated or stimulated mm-hmm. when you when you read certain things. Yes. So yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of reading something that you're gonna write on down the road about some of these, some of these issues that you're talking about, because it is an interesting, an interesting area to think about and, yeah. and to develop. Well, Demisty, thank you so much for, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Demisty Bellinger, her novel is New to Liberty. It is published by Unnamed Press. That's a Los Angeles-based small publisher. And New to Liberty is Unnamed's submission for the 2022 Republic of Consciousness Prize for the U.S. and Canada. Thank you, Demisty. Thanks, Demisty. Yep, thanks.